Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with my friend and fellow design obsessive Paola Antonelli, who joins me, I'm in London, from her base in New York. Hi Paola. Hello Alice. So on most episodes of Design Emergency, Paola or I interview the inspiring designers, architects, engineers, scientists and others who are at the forefront of developing innovative design solutions to the big social, political and ecological challenges that we all face. But from time to time, Paola and I discuss design's response to specific issues in this episode to the complex and contentious field of human rights, which are under attack in so many parts of our planet. We've each chosen to explore different aspects of human rights as defined by the United Nations as rights inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. So in this episode, we'll discuss design's role in defending and strengthening those rights and in preventing abuses of them, always asking which design responses have worked, which haven't, and why. So we'll begin with Paula on human rights and violence. You know, as you can imagine, this theme is so huge that we're only scratching the surface of it. And so moving from a definition of human rights to a definition of violence, I'm, I'm going to use a definition that my co-curator at that time, Jamer Hunt, and I used for a project in 2015 called Design and Violence. He was online. And, and we defined violence in a very broad terms. We defined it as the manifestation of the power to alter circumstances against the will of others and to their detriment. So as you can imagine, this encompasses all sorts of physical, political, psychological, gender violence, and we try to tackle it that way. So how do designers deal with violence? Well, the most obvious way to do something about violence as designers is to manifest it, to make it visible. And in the years that went uh, by since the end of design and violence, which was 20 2016, end of 2016, a lot has changed in that new types of violence have become more visible or at least more acknowledged and understood. Black Lives Matter, for instance, or even just the uh, the, the, the progress and the backtracking in, uh, in uh, women's rights and LGBTQIA plus rights. So there's a lot that has changed, but I would like to bring to you the example of a designer that Alice and I have celebrated and interviewed in our previous course of design emergency, which is Federica, Federica Fragapane. She's an Italian designer. She's based in Turin, uh, but she works online, really, because she does mostly online and on paper. She does mostly visualizations, and sometimes the visualizations are uh, about very benign data sets uh, related to literature. She worked a lot with the Corriere della Sera, which is a newspaper in Italy. But sometimes, instead, she tackles really very, very serious um, subjects. One of the most beautiful examples of Federica's work refers to the protests that have happened in Iran in the fall of 2022 in, uh, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of the death of young Masa Amini, 
at the hands of the religious police. She was arrested because she was not wearing the hijab in the right way, and uh, she died there afterwards. And uh, the protests in Iran have been amazing. Um, thousands and thousands of people have uh, taken to the streets, and uh, hundreds have been killed. And uh, uh, in particular, there's been a protest, a form of protest that's been very evident online, whereby women from Iran especially, maybe even living abroad, but also living in Iran, went online and cut their hair live as uh, a way to show a getting rid of subjugation and also sacrificing freedom that comes with the hair and also sacrificing beauty and sacrificing life. And it's really important to uh, make that that incredibly important protest known. And what Federica did is she started online showing a big tress of hair, and she would add one hair to uh, testify, to be testimony uh, for every person that was killed. Hundreds of people killed, and the tress became bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is a very simple way to show, uh, an evocative way to show violence and to make it known to everyone. Federica also did dealt with many different subjects, for instance, the death of activists in Brazil, when uh, activists that were trying to protect the Amazon from deforestation, and several other examples. And her work continues. It's about making the invisible visible in an elegant, compelling, and unforgettable way. It is truly extraordinary work. And of course, the, the hair protests in Iran have been deeply moving and, and very meaningful, particularly as for, for Muslim women, shedding their hair is a, a traditional symbol of, of mourning. So it also relates to that within Muslim culture. But also moving for me were the protests during the World Cup and the courage that it must have taken for the Iranian football team to refuse to sing the national anthem, which was really a form of improvisational design, even though they practised it unknowingly, not knowing, of course, what the consequences would be when they returned to Iran. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we take an expanded view of design, definitely, but it's communication design. These kind of, of public ways, performances of protest and performances of grief are incredibly important forms of communication design. Of course, and they help the causes to go global. So we're astonishingly effective at doing that. So it reminds me also of uh, a really great project that I saw several years ago. There was one of, one of the first instances in which I saw the invisible made visible in such a blatant way. It was a project by the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia University. It was Laura Kurgan and, uh, and several other people working together. And it was called Million Dollar Blocks. So as it turns out, there are blocks in the cities in the United States whereby the government, whether it's the local government or the state or federal government, spends more than a million dollars a year to keep some of the inhabitants of the block in jail or in halfway houses, but outside of society as a preventative measure for these inhabitants of the blocks not to go and create problems. So it's almost a form of social entropy. Instead of reintegrating convicts in society, it's about keeping them out. And it's a big waste of taxpayers' money. 
And you know, it's, uh, it's really quite jarring because there's more than 200 of these blocks or 300 of these blocks in Brooklyn, in the borough of Brooklyn alone in New York City. And if you see this kind of figure printed in a newspaper in the morning, you might be stunned and outraged for 20 minutes, but then it leaves your mind, it just goes away. And instead, the Million Dollar Blocks Project marked these blocks in blood red over a black map of Brooklyn, and all of a sudden you had this violence and this idea of injustice that was really stamped and engraved forever in your mind. And that really made me think, and it's not only me, it also was the, the kids that were coming to MoMA and were seeing this on the walls. It really made me think that design is necessary for justice. It really is important because it's one, one of the most powerful tools at our disposal to make violence seen and justice pursued. Absolutely, and another crucial example of its um, success in doing that. And if you uh, go to our Instagram, which is design.emergency, you'll find images there of all the projects that Paola's just talked about and the others that we'll talk about in this episode. So I'm going to move on and look at um, another form of, of symbolism in the fight against human rights abuses. But this is really a, a form of institutional symbolism because it's one of the most famous symbols in the world and a universally recognised symbol of support for human rights, which is, of course, the Red Cross. And the history of symbols like this goes all the way back to medieval times, when knights started to attach their coats of arms to their shields and breastplates. This happened from the 12th century onwards to make them easily recognisable by their comrades and easily distinguishable from their enemies once their face and bodies were hidden behind metal armour, because until then, knights would often find themselves dueling with their comrades simply because they hadn't managed to recognise one another. Now, the same principle was applied to the design of the Red Cross in 1864 as a Red Cross composed of two red lines of equal lengths on a white background. So a wonderful example of proto-modernist and rationalist design. And the aim was to ensure that its teams would be instantly recognisable on battlefields as belonging not to one side or the other, but to a politically and religiously neutral organisation that was dedicated to treating the injured. So the right to claim safe passage. And the same applied and the same design principles then applied to the Red Crescent and later the Red Crystal, which was subsequently designed to fulfil the same role for different communities. Yet the recent introduction of another symbol in the same terrain shows just how contentious they can be. It's the new emblem of China Aid, the Xi regime's aid organisation that has become a familiar sight on planes, trucks and containers when it delivers food, clothing and medical supplies, mostly to China's allies in Africa, South Asia and Latin America since its introduction in 2020. Now, the symbol of China Aid is very cleverly designed. It consists of the loops in bright red of a knot, a historic Chinese knot set against a white background, which is a seemingly respectful nod to the Red Cross itself and also to China's cultural history. The knot is one of the country's most popular historic motifs. It dates back to the Tang and Song dynasties from the 7th to the 13th centuries. And the red is Pantone 485C, 
also known as Chinese red, the colour of China's national flag, and of course of Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. Yet, this symbol has become an important political weapon in President Xi's relentlessly ambitious global expansion strategy to dislodge the United States as the dominant global economic superpower. And this was glaringly evident during the COVID-19 crisis when China applied valuable lessons that it had learnt by dealing with SARS in the early 2000s to become the first major economy to emerge from lockdown, if only at that stage. It dispatched its top doctors on global advisory missions to share their experience of treating COVID-19 all over the world and also delivered humanitarian aid in shipments prominently branded with the China Aid logo in a deftly planned, politically weaponized international aid program. And tellingly, China Aid's official slogan has changed from the original for shared future that it used during COVID to the rather more ominous walking with the persecuted faithful. Working with the persecuted faithful? I mean, this is really such an amazing change. I had no idea that that happened. What, does, what do you read in that? Well, I think walking with is, of course, you know, similarly like the respectful nod to the Red Cross and a beloved image from Chinese cultural history. It sounds very benign, very caring, very nurturing. Um, but the words persecuted and, and faithful are visibly weaponized, um, both in their sense, faithful to whom, to the Xi regime in, in China and persecuted by whom, by all its enemies. Whereas for shared future was a much more benign and welcoming gesture to the rest of the world. What I would like to talk about right now is the Black Lives Matter murals, but before that even silence equals death, AIDS uh, activism sign. So the silence equals death poster, I'm going to describe it to you. It's silence, then the, the sign, then the symbol equals, and then death that are written in white over a black background with a like pink triangle on top. The pink triangle was claimed from the pink triangle that was used in Nazi concentration camps to denote homosexual, bisexual men or transgender women. And uh, it was really a sign of discrimination uh, based on gender and especially on homosexuality. And uh, ACT UP, which is uh, the AIDS coalition to unleash power in New York and on the East Coast during the AIDS crisis, co-opted it with these posters that went everywhere. And uh, it came up you know, with a six gay activist. Their name was Avram Finkelstein, Brian Howard, Oliver Johnston, Charles Krilov, Chris Leone, and Jorge Socaras. So this is a really amazing example of protest. And in a way, the Black Lives Matter mural that in the May and June of 2020 happened, uh, was painted over the pavements of many cities in the United States and around the world, starting with Washington, D.C., was a continuation of that protest. But there are also some very quiet ways. And then there's one architect that I met that really struck me. Her name is Amy Kiyota. She is Japanese and she's been, she is an, actually an environmental gerontologist. So she studies how elders live 
in different societies and how they can be integrated. She worked from Japan also in Sri Lanka, in Bhutan, in the Ivory Coast. Recently, she moved to Singapore. And everywhere, she's had an amazing impact. She founded a company called Ibashu. That Ibashu in Japanese means a place where you can really feel comfortable, a place that you can feel your own. And the principles are that Ibashu is founded on are amazing. For instance, she says that older people are a valuable asset to, to the community. All right? So that's one of the simplest way. And then she says that all generations should be involved in the community, it should be multi-generational, and all residents should participate in normal community life, and the communities should be environmentally, economically, and socially sustainable, resilience. I mean, there's many different principles that are quite uh, natural, if you wish. And in a way, they also behind, I don't know how many of you have heard of blue zones. There are these places in the, in the world where there are so many elders that live to 105, and they have different uh, kind of traits in common. You know, one is in Sardinia, where I was born, there's some in Greece, there's some in Japan. They have some of these principles in common, the intergenerational part especially. But what was really amazing to me is that during a conference, I heard Amy being really an activist by telling a bunch of architects and designers that they should know that elders don't want to be protected because that's dependency, don't want to be provided special services because that would be ageism, don't want to have specially designed built environments because that would be stigmatizing them. They don't want to have age-specific design because that would be segregation. And they don't want excessive convenience because that would be social isolation. So it's very funny because we always think of the, of the opposite. We always think that they need to be, things need to be made easier for elder people. Well, they don't want that to be too much because otherwise they would feel excluded and ultimately not recognized for the important asset that they are to society. Now, that's activism to me. It is. It's designed as a tool of social empowerment and um, brilliantly defined. And of course, there are very interesting parallels with the British social designer Hilary Cotton's work on ageing. She redesigned, or she and her team redesigned the provision of care for elderly people um, for a London council and discovered when talking to seniors in the borough that what they wanted was to be enabled to be as active and helpful as possible to fellow seniors, um, while also benefiting from their peers' advice and practical help in fields where they were perhaps less strong. So um, I think empowerment um, for the golden years is a fantastic form of activism. But we're now going to move on to um, a very practical example of one of the biggest logistical responses in design terms to human rights, and that is refugee camps. Now, obviously, one of the major challenges of our time is the escalating global refugee crisis um, as historically unprecedented numbers of people seek asylum um, from conflict or persecution um, in the hope of finding safe places for themselves and their families to live. And designers worldwide have rallied round during this crisis by developing new ways of providing emergency support to people who've been forced to flee their homes and also then to help them to settle in the long term into new countries after they've secured asylum there. 
But by far the most visible and by far the most expensive area of the design response is the design and construction of refugee camps, principally those run by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees or the UNHCR. Now, refugee camps themselves have had to expand rapidly because of the crisis. So the Zatari camp in Jordan is the fourth largest city in the country by population and the world's biggest single refugee camp, a cluster of camps in the Cox's bizarre region of Bangladesh is now home to over a million people. Yet the cruel irony is that these incredibly expensive, highly contentious refugee camps are a deeply flawed design solution to the problem they're seeking to solve. Now the UNHCR admitted as much in 2014 when it announced its intention to phase them out only to fail to do so when the number of asylum seekers escalated dramatically following the conflicts in Syria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Ukraine and elsewhere. This has left the UNHCR's design team struggling to balance the competing needs of the immediate urgent needs of people who are intensely vulnerable and have often arrived at camps needing emergency shelter after long and dangerous journeys with the longer term need to establish places where they can live potentially for many years. Many refugees end up living in camps or settlements for well over a decade and that they can do so safely, healthily, productively while ideally integrating with local communities as swiftly as possible. Now, among the practical obstacles that they face in doing so are the impact of the relentless rise in numbers of refugees in impeding their efforts to design and build as ecologically responsibly as possible, to customise the design of each emergency shelter to meet its occupants' immediate needs, and ideally to enable it to adapt to their changing needs over the many years that they may stay in the camp or settlement, when babies will be born, children will grow older, elders will die, and so on. Another major problem is the insistence of many host countries that camps cannot offer better facilities than those that are offered in the surrounding areas. This sets a very low bar as typically refugee camps are in economically deprived areas with inadequate resources and the camps are expected to have standards lower than that. And yet another problem is that so often the design decisions that shape refugee camps and their infrastructure are taken by outsiders, generally well-intentioned designers who don't necessarily understand the logistics of the location or the priorities of the people from very diverse communities and different faiths who live there. Despite the best intentions of those involved, this often leads to misjudgments and also to standardised design solutions, such as the IKEA Foundation's well-intentioned but problematic Better Shelter project. Because these solutions are frequently imposed on very vulnerable people in intensely complex conditions when a bespoke response would be much more effective. But thankfully, there have been many very constructive design responses to all these challenges relating to the refugee crisis. And an example is the work of the Bangladeshi architect Marina Tabasum and her colleagues in the Rohingya refugee camps in Cox's Bazaar.
They're experimenting with using fast-growing, locally-sourced bamboo as a versatile and sustainable material with which they can build bespoke shelters, care centres and other structures there, mostly topping them off with thatched roofs, which again are far better suited than standardised construction materials to the climate and other demands of the region. Their aim is to build structures that are robust and sustainable, but are also versatile enough to be modified as the user's circumstance change and their building techniques like their materials are steeped in traditional practices in the region that work effectively in its climate and ecology and in the intensive research that they conduct with the people who use them to assess their needs and wishes. Marina and her colleagues then apply the lessons learnt in their work on modular housing throughout Bangladesh, recognising that each region of such a vast and culturally eclectic country will have very different needs. And equally inspiring is the development, not just over many years but many decades, of the Nakavali refugee settlement in Uganda near the border with Tanzania. It started in 1958 and it's the oldest refugee settlement in Africa and the eighth oldest in the world. It occupies a huge site of 184 square kilometres, just over 70 square miles, which includes a lake, rolling hills, fields and streams. Now, Nakavali combines many different design responses, from emergency shelters to large areas that are constructed as villages with individual homes built in brick or locally sourced mud. Traditional construction techniques are used to build them, as well as local materials, and each house occupies a plot of land that its residents are expected to cultivate. They're trained how to grow fruit and vegetables and other crops there. There are also health centres and schools in the camp, which runs courses at a vocational training centre to help its occupants and Ugandan nationals living locally to secure paid employment. Critically, Ugandan law enables asylum seekers to seek employment relatively quickly, enabling them to become economically productive. Now, Nakavale is far from perfect, but it has made tremendous progress in designing flexible and empowering homes on a temporary and permanent basis for refugees and asylum seekers and easing their paths to building fruitful futures for their families. Now, what we really need is a wholesale and radical revision of global refugee law in all aspects to have the productive and empowering refugee system that we need. But the example set by Marina Tabasam in Bangladesh and the residents and all the design teams associated with the Nakavali refugee settlement in Uganda point to the kind of design strategies that can be used in the future to develop functional and nurturing refugee systems. It seems like we're talking about elders, we're talking about refugees, we're talking about human beings. It's all about designing together with, not kowtowing, not just like talking down to people and giving them prefab solutions that people from the outside world think are uh, suitable for them, but rather really doing it together, right? It's about dignity and respect and collaboration. Absolutely. And it would be foolish to underestimate the practical pressure and challenges for UNHCR and other design teams who are operating out in the field, given the the scale of, of the crisis. For example, um, Nakavale generally attracts 2,000 refugees a month. If there is a war in neighbouring countries, that immediately 
shoots up and becomes higher at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, the Zaatari camp in Jordan was um, having to cope with over 2,000 people every night arriving there. So compromises have to be made in terms of the ecological sustainability of the camps and in terms of of the urgent need to customise their logistics as much as possible. But as you rightly say, Paola, in every design enterprise and endeavour like this, people have to think much more holistically and, of course, not only about human beings. And that's where design really is helpful, not only with human beings. You know, I'm going to bring now some examples of the rights of other species and even of other entities. You know, I'm going to talk about interspecies design. And, you know, even from a ruthlessly anthropocentric perspective, enhancing the well-being of other species and of the planet leads to the enhanced well-being and productivity of the whole ecosystem. So sometimes it is baffling to see that so many people are resisting the uh, the absolute necessity to think of the rest of the planet and not only of human beings, because also every loss of a species goes to the detriment of the whole. And so in other words, biodiversity matters. Many thinkers of many different provenances are using animals sometimes as metaphors or as ways of talking about human beings. But there's a big problem. We don't really know what animals want. You know, we can go back to the beginning of the 20th century, think of the work of Estonian um, scientist Jakob von Uxkul, who came up with this idea of the Umwelt, that is the idea that every animal uh, lives in its own perceptual world, and we do not know what that world is like. So some of the interesting work of, uh, of designers has been to try and attempt to understand how animals think. There's been, for instance, the work of uh, the research of Yona Friedman, an, ar- an architect that was very active in the 70s and 80s, that was trying to understand animal society by comparing it to human society and showing how much gentler sometimes and sensible animal society is. Ant Farm, that was a collective in uh, the United States in the 1970s that came up with this whole project called Dolphin Embassy. And it was a research project that, of course, was never built, but they tried their best, that attempted to study the communication between the human being and dolphins through architecture. And when the group, when the collective was disbanded, at some point, Doug Michael, that is one of the architects, continued the project. But it's not only animals that have rights. One of the tools at our disposal is to try and give legal representation and legal personification to natural uh, elements, not only to animals. For instance, in 2018, uh, in Colombia, Belkis Izquierdo, who's a magistrate of the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, which is a judicial body creating created in the Colombian peace agreements of 2016, you might remember the end of the Civil War, she was was charged with investigating and judging the crimes committed during the country's decade-long civil war against rivers and against the forests of Colombia. So Izquierdo has advocated for a shift in how we think about nature by declaring that nature should be considered a victim of such crimes. And she says something beautiful. She says, it's not just the defense of humans 
and addressing the crimes that have been committed against humans, she says. But other subjects of rights that are indivisible from the people, the body and the territory. It's a way of living. So this important attempt to make people realize that as humans, we are part of nature and what we do to nature, we do to ourselves is a very important message, but sometimes it's hard to drill it into people's heads, especially into corporations or some politicians. And by making this attempt juridically to try and uh, make people feel this, this uh, identity, this co-identity, I think it's, it's a way to go. And it's also an act of design. You know, sometimes even policy is an act of design. And what is being attempted, not only in Latin America, in Colombia and Ecuador, but also in New Zealand, you know, the Maori people have been really active and have become part of the government and have really instituted a whole different way to look at the land and to look at the land's entanglement with the people that is really changing the way we look at the world and i hope it's going to continue and maybe also expand i hope to the rest of the solar system and of the universe because it's very dangerous to see what's going on now in terms of the rights of planets they're not respected at all <laughs> and they haven't communicated their needs or wishes to us yet not yet so we need to talk <laughs> The day will come. So on that ultra expansive note, we hope you've enjoyed our whistle stop tour of design responses to human rights. Um, thank you, Paula. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this episode of Design Emergency. Remember, you can find images of all the projects we've discussed on our Instagram grid at design.emergency. We look forward to welcoming you back very soon when we'll be talking to another remarkable force in design as a catalyst of positive change. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>